0: So today, um, in a rather fitting way, we have been talking about relationships, and obviously even some of these heavier matters that we deal with in culture, they are the byproduct of dysfunctional and unhealthy relationships. Um, If people would function the way Jesus did and value life the way Jesus did, we would see a lot less of this stuff in our world. And so there is a a relational value that we have been trying to mine out of this passage in Philippians. And we will spend the rest of this month until my vacation talking about this section of Scripture. And this past week, I uh, kind of mapped out the finality of this chunk of the Bible. And I want to share with you a little bit about how this is going to look. So we've been talking about what it means to live for others like Jesus lives for you and for me. And each week, depending on the nature of it, we're going to spend some time and maybe even multiple weeks looking at a certain characteristic or an attribute, if you will, of the way that Jesus lived. And so we've looked at several already. Selflessness is what we talked about last week. Today we're going to begin looking at love because this is uh, the primary motivation for why Jesus does what he does for us. It's also the primary motivation for why Paul reminds us about what Jesus has done for us in Philippians chapter 2. And so this section of Scripture contains some of the most important teachings in the whole book of Philippians because it really does focus on what it means to have healthy relationships. And please hear me when I say relationships here. This is a 30,000 uh, feet in the air understanding. Relationships have a, a myriad of expressions in our lives. Friendships, uh, husband and wife, you know, brother and sister, dating relationships. Who, who knows? There's no limit to what relationships can look like. But the application from these passages affects them all. So this is a teaching talking about healthy relationships. And in it, Paul teaches us that those who have experienced the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus, this is part of what it means to become a believer. We get to this place in life where we say, I don't fully get this, but I'm starting to sense that there is something pretty amazing about this guy who people call Jesus. And that he has this, this devout love for me, a love that is uh, beyond comparison. What Paul is saying is that, listen, if you are the type of person who has gotten to the place in your life where you have experienced the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus, which Paul describes in great detail in these verses, then we should be the kinds of people that over our pursuit of Jesus for the rest of our days, that we begin to embrace the same type of selfless, sacrificial love for the benefit of others. In other words, as we grow into the image of Jesus, those attributes should be growing in us. That is what healthy progress in the Christian faith looks like. Not perfect progress, we've said this a lot, but healthy progress. Now, in doing so, what happens is when we begin to embrace this type of living, heart-deep living, uh, we begin to lay a foundation, a rhythm, if you will, for joyful, lifelong relationships. And so the nature of this teaching shows us that people by design were meant to have meaningful relationships with other people. We talked about this last week. The origin of the world as we know it was rooted in relationship. We were never alone. It started with us and the Lord, and then it it spread between us and other people. Relationship, although we may make it an option in the Christian faith, and there is a whole movement in the world today, uh, the modern Christian church that is doing this, we have wrapped up relationship and exclusion and created preference and, and partiality, and for some of us, we've begun to practice these extremely unhealthy individualistic forms of Christianity. We'll touch a little bit on that today. We have the option to do these things. But I'm telling you that Jesus never gave us the option. It is a deviation from the way that God wants us to function. And so the reason people move away from this type of selfless, sacrificial living is because it is hard. And if you have been in a meaningful relationship or are in one, you know that deep and meaningful relationships are the most rewarding and challenging things you will ever be a part of. They will make you happy one day and they can ravage your life the next. There is great risk associated with them, but also a great reward. When we function in them the way Jesus calls us to. And so in this passage, Jesus sets a very high bar for us. And even though he sets a very high bar for us, for the way that he lives his, his life, at the root of it all is a singular motivation. And we can derive this very explicitly from this passage. It is this concept of love. Love for his father and love for us. He, he considers us valuable. He is better than us, but does not function that way. All of these things that make Jesus, Jesus are motivated by his love for God, his father in heaven, and his passion and care and concern for us. So love is the theme of what we'll be for the next couple of weeks. And love is an interesting concept. It is a word that has an incredible amount of baggage and confusion connected to it in our modern culture. And this is especially true, although the, the main point of our talk today is not romantic love. We certainly will talk a little bit about it here at the outset. I think perhaps more than any other place, romantic love is where we see the greatest forms of convolution. So t- take what we're talking about here and then just kind of you know, migrate it into your peer relationships or whatever else you're involved in. Right? Let me give you an example. Uh, some time ago, you know, I, I do a lot of broad reading. It's kind of one of my things. And I, I came across an interesting article, a pop culture article. That was uh, funny, interesting, and disturbing. All it was like the trifecta of. Uh, powerfully poor writing. And so it was written by uh, a Match.com specialist, which is, you know, is one of those like online uh, dating services. And it was syndicated through Yahoo News and a couple of other uh, major news kind of broadcasting entities. And it was talking about, uh, you know, most modern writing today is like five ways to do this or 10 ways to figure this out. This is the zeitgeist of our culture. And so this was one of those articles that was talking about uh, seven surefire ways a person could find romantic love in their lives. And, And they were all funny, but what was funny about them is that they were And so I want to share with you two of the most disturbing uh, love tips that they gave. Uh, So think about this. You're single. uh, You're looking for love. And these are the places that they encourage you to do it. Uh, The first one, this was my favorite one was to uh, work your connections at extended family reunions, okay? So think about this. Uh, this is a love tip that basically tells you uh, all of you are going to get invited to go to Kansas at some point this year, right, and meet your extended family, and uh, and you should go there looking to see if you can hook up with somebody. And I, I think this is an interesting and an incredibly uh, – problematic understanding of, of love. But nonetheless, if you are for this, like if you're saying, like I know he's saying we shouldn't do this, but this sounds like a really good idea, and I'm going to be in Kansas next month, um, I would encourage you to call your grandmother and get an exhaustive list, a picture list of all your cousins uh, before you go to that thing, because you don't want to make a mistake on that one and you know, wind up dating your third cousin from Missouri who's visiting you in Kansas. Uh, an incredibly like, predatory understanding of how to work a, a family reunion, right, to find love, um, at least in my <clears throat> opinion. Here's another interesting one. Uh, this one was almost as disturbing and maybe even a little more disturbing. Uh, it said, again, looking for love, uh, that if you, if you are single and can't find somebody, then you should hit up – this was a literal term – hit up, take in types of people you like and ask them to set you up with someone who is similar. And so in case you don't know, maybe you're not up with like the modern slang. Uh, in, in, this, in this worldview, the, the love tip, uh, hitting up, is actually a way of talking to somebody. And I tried to think of like what this would look like if somebody was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years down the road attempting to date one of my daughters. I, I tried to imagine like what this young man would say to me about how he uh, met her and wanted to date her. And his response would be something like this. If I were to say, hey, so how you, how'd you desire to want to date one of my daughters? And he said something like this. Well, I started hitting up all the girls that I really wanted to date um, who were already taken. But unlike me, they had some morals, and they would not cheat on their boyfriends with me. So the the next best thing for me was to ask them which of their friends I should talk to. And so here we are, Pops. I'm here to, like, ask you to, you know, date your daughter. At least in my mind, he calls me Pops because it – it makes it much easier for me to want to choke him when I hear that word. So, uh, I, I mean, if you think about this, like, w- what, what would you do with this? Like, if somebody in your world, somebody you deeply cared about, was was seeing relationship this kind of, uh, this way, like a utilitarian type of, it just looks like pre- predatory behavior, right? And so, there were lots of other warped tips in this article. And this is not a singular article. You can, I mean, just search, like, how to find love or how to have healthy relationships, and you'll get, like, six billion Uh, search hits that are talking about what they think you should be doing here and so we don't have time to look at all that stuff today but nonetheless a lot of healthy relationship or or at least understanding it and seeking it in our culture is cut from the same vein of logic and reading this article caused me to shift gears a little bit this week in my preparation because it really shows us that there are some less than noble perspectives on what love is and how we should find it or experience it in our culture and so, in light of this reality, it's kind of important that as we talk about one of the defining attributes of who Jesus is and why he does what he does for us, this word love, it's important that we talk a little bit about what Christ's love is and isn't for us. Uh, we'll never have a healthy selflessness or desire to love other people if we don't understand the origin or the root of who Jesus is and how he loved. Something is going to shape the way we love in life. It is inevitable. Pop culture, media, books we read, novels, the input of friends, something will determine how we love. But if you are in this room trying to love Jesus, then what I would tell you is, our goal is to let nothing but Jesus shape the way we learn to love. That changes the game in how we live and how others experience his grace. So if we want to love selflessly, then we have to begin by pointing out A great misconception about love today, and it is a common one, one that most of us have probably been on the receiving end of experiencing. Today, many people think love is more about getting a personal emotional need met rather than it is meeting the need of another person. And I just want to reread this to you uh, in Philippians 2, 5 uh, through 7. So today, many people think love is more about getting a personal emotional need met rather than it is meeting the need of another. What, Jesus, what Paul says to us about Jesus in Philippians 2 completely turns this paradigm upside down. He tells us, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't see forms of family or people as something to use to advantage self. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So this misconception it makes perfect sense in a world where we see an ever-increasing emphasis on individualistic living. And the effects of putting uh, the me before the we, I mentioned this a few months ago, when it comes to how we live, uh, can really be seen in culture everywhere. This is where there's an unhealthy desire to advantage self over other people. I'm not saying don't care for yourself. We were very clear about this. Paul isn't saying devalue yourself. He's saying value others like you value yourself. And so in this in this kind of idea what happens is we value other people less than we do ourselves and we begin to treat them in negative or unhealthy ways and i want to kind of sidetrack here but sidetrack in a very important way Um, this is one of the reasons this philosophy of the me before the we is one of the reasons why we in the western world value skepticism so much and we believe it almost an essential trait to our survival as a people uh, let me explain a little bit. Uh, to varying degrees, every person in our culture has been trained to think that most people are just out for themselves. They, that if they are given the opportunity, they will put their own needs ahead of yours. And if given the chance, would certainly advantage themselves at your own expense. And so think about this in, in the natural sense. Um, when my children hear the doorbell ring, I don't encourage them to just open it and hope it works out, right? And neither do you. When a doorbell rings, there is a general caution that is in the back of our heads because we want to make sure that what is on the other side is not going to hurt us or take advantage of us. Maybe there's an intruder or in my neighborhood we get tons of salespeople that are always coming by. But nonetheless, you're always like, there's somebody weird at your door that you've never seen and they've got a pamphlet in their hand and you don't know what that's about. That's not a normal behavior in our world. So we, we sense it as a bit irregular. It's why when you sign a contract or you talk to somebody, uh, like if somebody random in the movie theater walked up to you and said, hey, can I have your email? You wouldn't be like, sure, and here's my cell phone, take all my contacts. You would have a general skepticism about the motive of that person. To a certain degree in the Western world, to varying degrees, uh, there is a general sense of distrust and caution. And I would say that this is part of, of, of a wisdom metric in our world. There is something kind of okay with this. There is a healthy level of natural skepticism that we should have when we live in a world where there are plenty of people who, if given the opportunity, would choose to take advantage of us. So what happens is because this is a pervasive theme in our world, relational violations, if you will, to combat this, over time, many of us develop a sort of sixth sense. It's an ever-increasing sense of individualism and autonomy. And we build this in our lives as a form of self-preservation. It's a defense mechanism now. It's why if you look at the American way, predominantly, most people want to make their own path. They want to make their own way. They want to carve out their own, their own lot in life. They want to be self-sufficient. They want to be self-reliant. They want to be independent. And these things are not necessarily bad, but when left unchecked, they, they cause us to believe a bit of a lie. We start believing that we don't need other people. Uh, at, at times, we might even think that we cannot trust anyone in our life, and that's not necessarily true either. We think that the healthier our lives are, it will be because there's a greater level of skepticism and pushing people out. Because we know there's a greater risk associated with trusting somebody else outside of ourselves. And this is a root heart attitude that shapes the me and the we. And so what happens here is if this is left unchecked, if we don't ever trust, if we don't ever love, if we don't ever care, if we treat everybody like this... The bottom line is that today, uh, many people in our culture end up approaching life from the preserving me side of things. Their normal MO is not care for another person. It's care for myself at the expense of another person. And we see this in significant and insignificant ways. So this is a normative behavior today, but it wasn't always this way. I'm not saying it was perfect ever, but there have been times in recent history, if you go back several hundred years ago, even in the earlier part of this, this past century, where people did place a different value on the we and the me. There was a better balance in the scale. Uh, we talked about this lightly a couple of months ago. Look, for example, in, um, if, you, if you look at the migration movements of North America in the early part of last century, um, I have an Italian-American heritage. Two generations ago, my grandfather was living in Italy. And so it wasn't just about an individualistic philosophy. There was a a whole ethnic culture that bound a person together. You found identity in in what you were and where you came from, in a family name, in history, in ethnicity, in nationality, in your city. There was a great pride in growing up in South Brooklyn. People cared about this. Your religion mattered. Your trade mattered. There was a different level of of just kind of being out there for self. Uh, Life and the establishment of an identity was more than just singularity. And I'm not trying to totally throw, let me say this, individualism under the bus. I'm not saying that that uh, any form of being individualistic is bad. Because if you were to go to the other side of the world, in the eastern parts of the world, what you will find is the paradigm is predominantly reversed. There, the we is more important than the me. And what happens is you begin to see reverse abuses there. So all I'm trying to say here is that it is helpful to know that this normal attitude that people have is certainly a deviation from the way God wants us to live. And it's even a shift from the way our culture has understood relationship. It's changed dramatically. And as far as I can tell by cultural writing, it's going to continue to move in this direction. This hyper-individualism is more a recent invention of the modern Western world than it is the way God has functioned or caused uh, humanity to function together. So as you can imagine, let's, let's put this in relationship now. Think about this hyper-individualism, right? It has a direct effect on everything we do and are, and our relationships are included in this. It affects how we understand and practice love. Most clearly that it's caused people to reverse the question we should be asking when it comes to love. It it causes us to take the main question Jesus asks us to ask, and then we ask it in a very different way. We start the paradigm, the love paradigm like this. Um, What can you do for me? I will be in relationship with you if you can do something for me. Um, how can you make me happy? How can you satisfy and meet, meet my needs? Love, in this worldview, is something that is seen. It's something another person does to fill me up. They, it's an action or an attribute that they practice on me to make me happy. And one of the best places we see this me-based philosophy regarding love, we see it generally in culture. But if you want to see the pointy tip of the spear with this, all you have to do is look at modern marketing. Marketing is essentially a pitch that is designed to move you in a way that gets you to do something, to act or to buy. And so marketing is designed to, get, to, to motivate you. And if you look at most marketing today, a great, a great uh, majority of it, is not portraying a very balanced type of love. My favorite example of this, I've referenced several Subaru commercials in this room, and I'll do another one today, is the ad campaign uh, for Subaru. Do any of you know what the one-word ad campaign for the Subaru car company is? Love, okay? So the idea is that Subaru is rooted in this concept of love. And Their marketing campaign is geared around this word and the concept of it. And so their commercials are are honestly, I think, some of the best on the planet. Uh, And they often blur the line between how a genuine love for people – is shaped by uh, a Subaru owner's genuine love for their car. And they do this in very sophisticated ways. Some of them are very uh, powerful and realistic ways. So they'll show you know, a, um, a, a wrecked car and two people standing at the side of a car talking to like, a police officer. And uh, there was one really good one where they were actually in, the, in a, a demo lot, like a lot where they were re- basically crushing the cars. And they were just going through all these wrecked Subarus, and they were like, yep, this one survived, and this one survived. And the point was that the cars are built incredibly safe. And one of the ways you love the people that matter to you is by making decisions that keep them safe. And so their safety record is connected to the word love, and that makes a lot of sense, right? It Actually, there's some logic to that. And it's why this is a very in-demand car. It's a cult following in America today. There's, there's another commercial, though, that is a little less accurate, and they've had several deviations of this, but nonetheless, the root of it is all uh, the same. It's essentially what is somewhat of a reckless behavior and the way people respond to it, how they, how they love it. My favorite one is that there's this, this uh, dad who comes home from work, and he's in a driveway, and his two unruly sons are, are washing his brand-new Subaru. Any of you guys seen this commercial? Okay, he's un- he's washing the Subaru, right? Uh, and we would think, like, man, that's great. If you haven't seen the commercial, we think that's awesome. But what's happening is, is they're washing the Subaru with, with steel brushes, right? Like the stuff you clean your grill with. And the windows are down, and there's, like, soap and water everywhere. And, I mean, the car is, like literally total it's so bad and so the 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 motivation point in the commercial is that the dad has this like aha moment like he's like essentially you can see he's like do i kill the kids or or you know do something else and in the commercial what he does is he just picks up the brushes and he starts destroying the car with him and it's a very cute commercial i'll give you that but but it's an interesting understanding of love because what's happening there is in in that moment it was innocent for sure But that is a totally negligent behavior. Right. And just say, for example, your kids did that to your neighbor's car. Right. That would you would not see the same response. You'd probably have a lawsuit on your hand. You'd have to replace somebody's vehicle. But in the commercial, what happens is the dad just he chimes in in order to affirm that he chimes in on the behavior and essentially continues to destroy the car. And and again, it's cute. It's funny. It probably sold a million cars. But I'll tell you uh, that type of love communicates sort of what we're getting at today it's a very subtle understanding of what love is and it is somewhat selfish because to encourage your children to continue behaving that way to not have the moment where you address that that's what would happen in our world, right we would we would we would talk to our children about why we couldn't do that anymore that is actually another form of love but that is not the kind of love that is popular in our world today Um, oftentimes the love in that commercial is what is more sought after. It's a bit mushy. At times it's a bit weak. It avoids tough issues and hard conversations, not because we're trying to be tough or hard, but we're concerned that by raising an issue – out of love, a genuine care for somebody, what happens is there's a selfish fear. It's actually more, there's a greater concern for self that if I bring up something difficult with you, then I might actually sever the relationship. By raising something tough with you because I care about you, it might cause us to not be in relationship anymore. And then the person basically says, I'm not going to do that because the risk is too great. And so commercials like that or that attitude if left unchecked, over time, it subtly starts to shape and warp how we understand what love is and what it looks like. And I connect Jesus' love to the cross all the time, but I'm telling you, you don't get the death of Jesus on the cross with a mushy Subaru love like this. There is a hard edge to the reality of what that love meant for us. And there has to be a space in love in our world to understand that, that love is not always going to be like this. There are different elements and facets to it. So compounding this confusion about love and relationship, here is where this kind of comes home for those of us who have been believers for a while is that there are great movements in the church today that teach a similar type of love. It's a very imbalanced and incomplete type of love. And we're not up here talking about uh, selling cars for Subaru. We've replaced words like Subaru. We, we, we use a different relational parallel. We use terms in the dating world like finding your soulmate. And even though we're not talking about dating today, the idea of the soulmate is that uh, it's, it's a teaching that's questionable in Scripture. But, and what it does in its worst-case scenario is it gets us thinking like, God has created the world and me in it, and he has put somebody in the world whose sole purpose is to make me happy. Like their existence on earth is to benefit and to pleasure my life. So what happens is, is we, we already start uh, tipping the scale. And I want you to think about this. Uh, you can see this in the world today. Uh, when, when you begin to embrace that type of relationship, whether it is with, God, uh, with people, um, it is guaranteed to understand. It's going to shape your understanding of God. This is taken to an unhealthy extreme a much further step at times where those same people then begin to uh, they invert their understanding of who God is and they begin to develop a similar expectation with him. They think that God created the earth and me in it and he is supposed to have the same role in my life. He exists to benefit me. He is here for my sole benefit. And that's why people walk away from Jesus when their life goes south. When things get challenging, they, 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 they have a hard time pursuing God because they automatically defer blame to what is going on in their life. They can't understand how these two things could cohabitate. They think that God is here to make them happy. And that is true, but we have to define what we mean by happiness. That's where these words begin to take on different uh, understandings. And so those of us, I was not raised a Christian, but I've been a believer now um, since 1997, I have been in plenty of places where this is what is taught, right? Uh, if you've grown up in a belief system like this, it, it, there's a very good chance that your heart has been subtly trained when you're thinking about love, uh, whether it is in a friendship or a romantic relationship or with God directly. The, the inaugurating question in relationship is not, what can I do for somebody? The questions start out like this, can this person need my, meet my needs? Um, are, are they going to be right for me? These are good questions, but they're in balance if we don't ask the same questions of ourselves. The, the question I would say we need to start out with whenever we're talking about a relationship, and I think this is true in who we see Jesus, he doesn't start the paradigm by saying, what can you do for me? He begins the paradigm by saying, I am, I am God, and because of that, I will do this for you. God has, God's son is God's son. He is who he is because he is God's son. And because of that, it shapes how he cares for people. The question for us is not, um, what can somebody do for me? The question we begin with is, am I mature enough to be the kind of person who can selflessly love others? And I think if we approach it this way, we will likely find that we'll have a much better track record of finding other people who understand relationship the same way. Thus increasing the viability and the health of our relationships, no matter what they are. The reason I can say this confidently is not just because we see it in Jesus. I mean, that should be enough. But on the people side of the fence, uh, those of you involved in community groups, those of you who have shepherded the human heart and other people, you are likely going to resonate with what I'm about to say. Um, over the years, in, in any type of relationship counseling um, it's, it's been very obvious to me that there is an increasing trend in relationships that are suffering from this toxic meet-my-needs-first approach. And I say it is toxic because placing this, this expectation on a person you are in a meaningful relationship with often creates a level of expectation the person can never live up to. Uh, when a person adopts this meet-my-needs-first kind of understanding, as opposed to the Jesus way of loving, which we're talking about now, which is that he takes the form of a servant. He basically is, he can say like, you should serve me. And eventually I will ask you to do that. But you will serve me because I have first served you, right? This is the Jesus way. Um, He loves those who don't reciprocate it to him. Uh, This is the way that Jesus loves. And it's very common when people don't have this understanding in their relationships to see those people begin to deal with issues in relationships that really shouldn't be issues. Rather, they've become issues because one person, or both persons have been unable to live up to the unrealistic relational or love expectations placed on the other person. And as a result, um, in counseling, I call this the full glass. Uh, So if you think about a a glass of water, a clear glass of water, if it's half full and you're talking and you bump the glass, the water rocks a little bit, but nothing happens. But when you get to the place where where selfishness defines a relationship, a slight nudge of the glass will spill two inches of it. This is the toxicity that begins to breed in our relationships. The most minute things are now explosive problems. Uh, You start to see major fights out of things that are mundane issues or best friends over the most... What, from the outside looking in, they're the smallest things. They, they make best friends strangers. The relationships are severed. Because if we're not living like Jesus, what happens is when a person does love us enough to care for us and to raise a difficult issue. If somebody raises a hard issue in life or they raise one with us, the response is not, this is being done out of love. That's not what happens. The response goes like this this person is re- is violating my, my religious liberties. This person is now speaking into my life in a way that violates my my individual space, my autonomy zone. And if you understand the kind of love that we see in Jesus's life, in our lives, what happens is you will then, you will fight back. You will see that as a threat. You will not see it as, you know, your brother in Jesus or your sister in Jesus who says, hey man, it seemed like you were kind of hard a couple of weeks ago. If you are understanding love like Jesus says, you'll say, Well, hold up a second. Like, what did I do? I I don't even know, like, what happened. I certainly didn't want to be hard with somebody, but help me understand what's going on here. That's a different understanding than what are you talking about? Like, that's ridiculous. You don't have the right to say this to me. Two different understandings of love. And consequently, if you take the latter, people who are once in meaningful relationships, what they'll see is that most of their relationships start becoming cold or distant. Because you can't have a healthy relationship without these types of conversations. And if you do have them without these types of conversations, they are probably going to be very skewed forms of relationship. All because they take the feel, right? People begin to sense that you're not loving them when you're loving them this type of way. The love is taking on a form that is different than the one they have uh, unhealthily expected it to be. Jesus would never, nobody in their right mind would see death on the cross, which Paul will get to here. He says, listen, he did all this stuff, And he did it to the point of death on the staros. I'll never forget, I translated this, share this with you earlier. I translated this book, this whole book, from Greek into English when I was in seminary. And when I read that verse in the Greek, it rocked my world. Because it was like the culmination of all these things selflessness, love, care, grace. Yeah, we throw these words around in, in our world. But what Paul is saying, like, all of that was validated by the death that he suffered for you on the cross. It took the mushiness of the love, and it created a hard reality of the cost of what Jesus' love, what it meant to him, what we'll talk about today when we take communion. So there's an interesting question we have to ask as we begin to wrap up this morning. We don't want to practice this type of love. At least we shouldn't want to. So how do we avoid this? How do we get to the place in life where we have a discerning spirit to understand this type of unhealthy love when it rears its head. It is, the, it is the, the, the river we swim in in our world. So we as Christians, and those of you pursuing the faith or wherever you are in your faith journey, we have to have a discernment space in our zone to understand the type of love Jesus wants us to have and the type of love that might distract us from the type of love Jesus wants us to have. How do we avoid this? Well, we start with two very important tools and and. It's actually combined in one talk today. We understand the Jesus of the scripture. Scripture is clear. And this is what Paul is talking about here. There is only one person who can be looked to as the ultimate example of what selfless love looks like. And there is only one person who can be relied onto to fulfill the ultimate desire we have to be loved. He is the ultimate example in flesh and blood because he did it. And he is the ultimate fulfillment of how we experience it. He is and he causes it. And so what I'm talking about here when I say how we are loved is not the trivial kind of love. It's the deep down kind of love that is like a fuel which sustains our lives. It's the gas that drives our heart. Ultimately, that kind of fuel only comes from Jesus. We can experience it in pieces and in places from the people in our lives. And we should strive for an ever-growing amount of that. But the ultimate filling of your love tank, no pun intended, only comes from the Savior. And so if you look to him to be your all in life, you will start personally experiencing. How can I say this? Because this is the promise of the gospel. You will start to experience love. You will sense the love of Jesus, the deep, real, powerful kind of love. And you will likely, as a result, place a far more, set, a far more realistic set of expectations on the people you claim to love in your life. In other words, if you want to live selflessly and love others, it begins by sensing the selflessness of Jesus for you, and the kind of love he has for you. You taste that honey before you pass it on. Chances are you might even find it more easy to love because your relationships will no longer be determined by these preconceived set of relational ideals that change with the wind. The end game of Jesus, unless God wrote that story, would not be death. It would have been, this is a hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. I'm out of here. That is the natural story of the gospel apart from the intervention of God's grace, which makes the gospel what it is. The ideal is not set by what goes on around us. The ideal was it was a a ray of light that shined down from heaven and set a new relational precedent for us. And when we live in that precedent, it starts to guide our other relationships. We are no longer defined by the shifting realities of relationships. We are rooted now in a grace-filled set of relational truths uh, that, that really culminate in the authority and the power of Jesus. It is Jesus' perfect and pure love that now shapes how we treat other people. That's the, 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 the power of this promise. And so before we move on to our, our, our second point briefly, I just want to say one thing here, that um, I don't want you to feel at all that I'm saying like there isn't a reality and emotion when it comes to love and relationship, no matter what that is. There are people in my life who I deeply love, and there are, there are emotions connected to that. I'm just saying that love, the way Jesus shows it to us, it is much, much more than just an emotion. And if you want to know what love looks like in in your life and how it looks like in the way you treat other people, especially when they treat you poorly, then you have to lay down your opinions and cultural expectations of what we think love should be and turn to Jesus Um, who shows us through word and deed what love actually is. I was sharing this with a couple of people earlier. If you want to see love gone awry, all you have to do is look at what happened in Texas. There is a person who thought that that was an act of justice by taking the life of innocent people. This is what happens when we skew the love paradigm. That is not an act of love. It was an act of evil that caused more, more harm than the world should have to deal with. It is not the way God calls us to treat each other. And we should not, whether it is in a sensational issue like that or in our everyday relationships, want to function in that. And so if you want to know how to love, we learn to love by looking at Jesus. We learn something very important from him. And that love, it's this, that love is, is an attribute of God. It's one of God's attributes. And so these last couple of minutes this morning, we're going to look to God to see what it's supposed to look like in our lives. And I want to jump out of Philippians for a moment into 1 John 4, 8, because there we read this. Whoever does not love, okay, this is, this is God speaking to us. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And that is a very short verse that is a theological mind-bender as far as I'm concerned. Because in it, um, what we're reading here is that those who are without love, it's an evidence that you don't know God. And it's not just saying that, that we should love because God loves. It actually begins to define God as love, right? So understanding the basic characteristics of this attribute, is important because it gives us a really clear picture of what true love is and in this verse John makes a, an undeniable connection that a proper understanding of God's love in our lives um, it is evidenced it's it's an evidence of us being in Jesus it's one of the, the 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 root of that creates a beautiful flower in our hearts and the reason this statement is incredibly important is because this verse teaches us that God is is love and in it is verses like this that we as as Christians derive what we call God's traits or His His characteristics or His attributes. And in case you don't know what an attribute is, um, I want to I want to let you know what that is because it is one of the reasons why God loves you. An attribute, whether it is uh, in, in God's world, it's a character trait that God possesses. And what it means is that um, when 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 we talk about an attribute of God, it is something that makes God. God. And so when we talk about love here, there are other attributes of God in the Bible, but the one we're talking about today is love. When it comes to God's love, it's important to know that common misconception that love isn't just something God is capable of. God doesn't just love. God loves because he is love. That's a very different statement. One identifies something God is. His substance is love. It's not just an act or a deed. God loves because he's love. So what John is saying here is, is if the God of love, right? One of the things God is, when you trust in Jesus, God makes that a part of you. If the God of love is in you, then you should have a growing knowledge of what God's love is like in your own life. And certainly in the way that you show it to others. And this will be especially important to remember as we talk about loving those who are far from God. This is where our teaching is going. It begins in how we care for each other, but it's going to end up in the way we love those who are far from God. There is no relationship we are exempted from practicing this from. And so, because of this, um, I want to share with you a, a really powerful, brief but powerful definition about what the attribute of God's love is. It'll be behind me. Um, and I love how Wayne Grudem defines this. He says this You want a, a one sentence description, a sentence description of God's love? It is this God's love means, right? Not even God's love does. What he's saying is, God's love means. That God eternally gives himself to others. Because God is love, God is bound to give himself to others. There is no other option for him because it is what he is one of the things that makes him God. So, what does that mean for the Christian as we grow into the image of our Father in heaven? It means that we can't primarily understand love as something we just get. Fundamentally, we have to see love as something that we give. It is the self-giving of oneself for the benefit of others. God's love teaches us that it is part of his nature to give himself for the benefit of others. He gives himself to bring out goodness and other people, grace in the world. And what that means is that God's nature, when God is in us, that nature should start to become our nature. In pieces and particles. Nobody loves perfectly, but we certainly should see a growth pattern in the kind of love we experience from God and the way we show it to others. And so God's love like this is preexistent. It's never not been. Jesus, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, they have always practiced this type of love. It has been around before the foundations of the earth. When you read the creation story, when you, especially in the unpacking of it in the New Testament, we learn that it is one of the, uh, it's, it's one of the attributes that causes creation. In other words, their love for each other causes a, a love that needs to be spread onto other people. Even even God's act in caring for us and, and loving us is a self-giving of himself. He makes us to, to give himself away to us. And ultimately, this ends with him on the cross. The apex of that giving away is the cross. It is unquestionably the greatest example the, the, the world has ever seen of love. And the cross is rooted in giving, not getting. And so love like this flies in the face of the selfish and incomplete types of love that we spoke about earlier. And furthermore, it, it sets the pace for the way that we are called to love each other in our relationships, which are under heaven meant to reveal Jesus in the flesh. The perfect love we experience is meant to be displayed in our actions. And so I'll close with this, um, and I shared this with you two months ago, but I say it again not because I didn't have other things to say, because I I think it's incredibly important to put a face on this love. Perhaps the clearest example we have of God's love, his attributes in our lives, comes from that list of the one another's. And the one and are these relational guidelines that Scripture gives us that inform how every relationship we have is, is meant to be treated. And so when you think of this, I, I'm only going to list a few of them today. It's not an exhaustive list, but it communicates the core essence of love. If you want to know what the word love means when you treat other people a certain way, this is what it means. Okay? The one and teach us many things. The handful of the ones I want to highlight today, the expression of love is shown in the way that we encourage one another, in the way that we are devoted to one another, in the way that we build up one another, in the way that we are kind to one another, and the way that we accept one another, in the way that we serve one another, and the way that we have a, a, a deep concern for one another, in the way that we confess sins to one another, this is where the, the love gets a little harder, right? That is a cause for forgiving one another at times, in the way that we teach and admonish one another, and the way that we pray for one another, all of these things here indicate a type of relational value And they are rooted not just in expecting these things from other people, but understanding that part of the substance, part of the thing that makes us followers of Jesus is that these are things we want to display to other people. And so the one another shows us that God's list, uh, his love includes, but it cannot just be limited to an experience or an emotional feeling. In fact, some of the one another's, they have very very hard emotions connected with them. And this is why it is important to know and to deeply believe uh, for those of us that are involved in meaningful relationships, especially if we've been connected to them for a long time, you know that if you let emotion and feeling, if that's the only kind of you know color on your painter's palette of love, what will happen is if you try to submit to that erratic understanding of emotion every time it comes up, then you'll drive yourself crazy. Because the most meaningful relationships we have in life, they have days and seasons that are filled with hardship and trial. They have days when the, when the outcome of what we should do um, it's, not actually incongru- it's, it's, in, it's not in congruency with what Jesus says we're supposed to do. All of our relationships have these types of, of, of days and seasons. There are days when you need something much more substantial than a Subaru commercial dealing with rowdy kids. You need something more substantial to deal with your kids when they are living in ways that truly pain you. The, the fuzzy emotion of that is not enough to sustain you to endure that trial or when your marriages are hard, or your friendships are hard, or when people you deeply love and care for and invest in, you give your lives to people and they just step all over that. There there is no emotion, there's no justified emotion that makes that feel okay. What is needed there is the fact that we have treated God this way, the same way, and he has said, and I'm going to love you in light of it. You see, the life of Jesus teaches us that if we want to have a proper understanding of love in our lives, then we've got to let the way God has shaped us, his selfless attribute of love, it's got to shape the way we treat other people. That is going to change the way you understand trial and tests in your relationships. It's going to begin to create in our lives a well-rounded type of love, one that is tender but tough, one that is selfless but sacrificial. It is a love that is defined by fidelity and faithfulness, a love that is defined by contribution, not just consumption. And frankly speaking, it's a love that we're about to celebrate right now. So if you need a response point for this morning, this is where you'll, you'll get it. We're going to celebrate communion here in a minute. And this is the physical remembrance. That it's, the, it's the blood and gut expression of the kind of love Jesus has for us. Because on the cross, the greatest example of love we have is seen here. It's a love that pursues us at great cost when there is nothing in return. It is an eternal love. A selfless love, it is a love that was experienced in the Godhead that is poured out on us. It is a love that gave to us when there was nothing given back in return. This is the kind of love and faith that our salvation has been birthed out of. It's why it is called the joy. Our salvation is to be a joy because it is a recognition that we have been invited into the communion of God. We, we interact with him in the same way Jesus does. What a statement. And it's what God calls us to pattern our lives after. And so as we approach the Lord's table... I, I leave you with this encouragement. Let the let the God of love, who we speak about this morning, lead you to real love. For many of us, and maybe even right now, it's a love that is invisible. We don't even sense it. But know that it is not an invisible love. It is a love that is rooted in eternity. It was made visible in Jesus. And it is now present for all eternity in God's people. That's you and I. And so his love is in this room. And it is my pa- it's my prayer that you would press into that reality as we dwell on the sacrifice of Jesus and then leave this place with it driving and guiding our hearts. Pray with me.